Lord, we are humble before you today. We ask, Lord, that you would make yourself um, so powerfully known this morning through the ministry of your word. Lord, I ask that our hearts would be tender, that we'd be teachable. Lord, that you would um, allow us, Lord, to grasp, Lord, the ways in which our thinking and our, uh, our attitudes have been distorted. And let us, Lord, be conformed to your purposes and your will this morning. Allow me to be your messenger. And Lord, be faithful to proclaim your truth for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, yesterday, I became a grandpa for the second time. And um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there. I got news via text, and the baby's name was Archer Roderick Phillips. And I knew nothing about that. I knew Archer, but my kids kind of said, oh, we're not sure what the middle name is going to be, blah, 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 blah. You know, I didn't push it. And then they hit me with that. I mean, who wants to name their kid Roderick? I mean, you wouldn't think that they would want to, but they did. And it really touched me. I mean, I was, I was crying when I read that. Then I saw the, the size of Archer, and I was crying on behalf of my daughter-in-law because um, he was large. But, you know, it, it just, it's interesting to me that, that birth um, is such a, such a powerful example, right? And because here we have Archer who has a new name. He is a Phillips now. That's what he is. And he'll always be a Phillips. He has a new family. He has a new identity. And with all the marks associated with his parents, all that is who he is today. And God's created him in such a way that he's going to grow up and he's going to develop. And all of the things that God put in him are going are to flesh out. And it got me thinking about this topic of discipleship. Jesus gives us a wonderful new life in him that is in its very nature a call to live, to think, and to act, and to speak in a way that reflects our new name, our new identity, and our new family. See, last week, Dennis took us to John 10, where Jesus describes himself as the door or the entryway. He also describes himself as the good shepherd, the one who cares for his flock, that shepherd who lovingly dotes on them, looks out for them throughout their life. And as we come to this topic of discipleship, there might be a sense in which we're tempted to like, okay, I'm going to tune out a little bit here. This is foundational. And it is. This morning's sermon is very, going to be very much a this is a football kind of a message. We're going back to the, to the basics, going back to the core and the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And I want to begin this morning just talking about my own journey um, in coming to the Lord and my own experience. And from that, uh, there are going to be some, some faulty views of discipleship. Uh, I came to faith in Christ when I was 16 years old. Um, God used the sport of soccer to draw me to himself. And the coach was also the youth pastor. And, and during those soccer practices, we would always stop and he would open the Bible and he would share something from Scripture. And I was an unbeliever 
living in a Christian home, but still an unbeliever. And then he spoke in chapel. This was at a Christian school. And it was just like the Lord just said, now's the time, Rod. Now's the time. And so I went and talked with him afterwards and made sure that I understood what was going on. I prayed to receive him as my Lord and Savior. And then I was put into discipleship, which was going to be kind of like a 10-week study of the basics of what it means to be a Christian. Nothing wrong with that practice necessarily, but you understand that discipleship is not limited to a 10-week introductory spiritual boot camp kind of study. That's the first faulty view of discipleship. Because, you know, what can happen there is we can say, well, you know, Rod went through discipleship. He has been discipled. (laughs) Secondly, there's this spiritual intensive. What I'm talking about here is a time when you are maybe coasting along in your Christian life for years, but but you really need, uh, or really feel like you need to have this intensive time of study where you can dive deeper and reach a new level in your Christian walk. And so for you, discipleship is that, that spiritual intensive. Now certainly there can be times when going on a retreat is beneficial and spending some focused time is, is all part of your growth. But in and of itself, it is not necessarily discipleship to, to reach those goals. In my experience, the third one really came in big because I, I was saved in a context, I would say a Christian context, that, that practiced, I don't know if they really believed it, but they practiced, okay, you got saved, but then you would go off to camp and then you would dedicate your life to the Lord. You guys ever grow up in that kind of a context? It's like a, stu- a two-stage kind of uh, a process here. And so I'm calling this second stage spirituality. These people are saved, but they haven't dedicated their lives to the Lord to be his disciples. They have their ticket to heaven. They prayed, might want to say, the sinner's prayer, but they have not committed themselves to being a disciple of Christ. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to find this two-stage activity going on. But this is often what is described as discipleship. Now you're a disciple. You're a believer, but now you're a disciple. No, that's not what Scripture says. The fourth one is really, I think, something that happens maybe in charismatic kind of context, but this deeper spiritual experience. You haven't really experienced the true depths of discipleship unless you go through XYZ experience. And that could be speaking in tongues. That could be having some kind of a vision. That could be having you know, some kind of a deep spiritual experience that takes you to this new level. And those are just some that, that I thought of here. There's some, some faulty views of what discipleship is about. There's some things that we shared here that aren't bad. It's not a bad thing to have a spiritual boot camp kind of a program. But that is not ultimately discipleship. It's a piece of it but it's not ultimately discipleship. So this morning, we want to ask ourselves the question, what is discipleship? And the place I want to begin is the Great Commission. And I want us to see some things here briefly from the Great Commission. I know that you know this. Let's read it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that, uh, that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now let me just kind of parse this out. You see some things that are up on the screen there. You, you have this great commission that begins with a, a declaration of power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. It's a declaration of a kingly power. And this king now has an important message. And here's what the message is. Go and make disciples. That first order, go therefore and make disciples. And there's a second here in this, and it's a promise. And surely I'll be with you always till the end of the age. Now, there's something else that's happening here in this, this order and those three things that are listed there. Go and make disciples, but there's a means by which disciples are made. And Jesus uses the expression baptism, and he uses teaching as the means by which discipleship is taking place. And then, of course, you have that promise at the end. So as you are going, the goal is to make disciples through the means of baptism and teaching. Now, it's not that baptism is somehow uh, regenerating. Baptism is, a, is a, a necessary identification that's part of your conversion process, if you understand what I'm saying. You're converted, and then you're baptized. And that baptize, baptism is that public demonstration of what has taken place in your heart. And that's how it's used here. But there's this teaching going on, and it's the teaching that takes place all throughout your life to be a learner and a follower of Christ, to observe, to obey everything I have commanded you. So at the heart of the Great Commission is the command to make disciples of all nations. So we can, I think, rightly say that making, uh, that making disciples of Christ is the mission of the church. This is what we're called to. The heart here is to make disciples. Now, how is that to be done? Well, what we have, the example of, if we get into chapter or to, to the next book, Acts, is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why in Acts 14.21, we find Paul and Barnabas visiting the city of Derby, where they preached the gospel and made many disciples. In other words, those are talking about the same thing, preaching the gospel that resulted now in the making of many disciples. Now, I want to, uh, with, with that kind of backdrop, I want us then to, to take some time to define discipleship this morning. This is not going to be a typical sermon where I'm just ex expositing one passage, but we will dive deep into a passage here in just a minute. But we want to define discipleship. And so, First of all, just note that the Greek word for disciple is the Greek word mathetes, and it's used to describe not only the 12 disciples of Jesus, but all those who had become Christians um, as the gospel spread. So in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, this is what we read. The disciples were increasing. I mean, does that mean that the 12 were putting on weight? No. It means that there were others that were being added to the fold, right? If you remember, there was 120 at the beginning, but there were these 12 that God had, or Jesus had called to himself. 
Acts chapter 6, verse 2 tells us that the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. And the purpose here in Acts 6, if you remember, was the need for solving the problem of widows being neglected. So the disciples, the twelve, called the disciples, <laughs> right? Then chapter 6 and verse 7 tells us that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multitude greatly in Jerusalem. That's kind of a summary statement, but it's reminding us then that this word disciple is initially what was used to describe those who were bowing the knee to Jesus. And we, we, give, we get certainty about that in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, where we're told in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So, kind of pulling that all together, the word disciple was first used to describe the specific men Jesus called to himself, the twelve. But as the word spread throughout that world, it was used to describe every Christian. So a disciple is a Christian. And discipleship is living one's life as a Christian. Now, that's kind of a general way to put it. There's lots of different ways we could put it. And I just sat down, I was thinking through, how could I, how could I kind of flesh out more specifically a definition of discipleship than kind of keeping it general? And I came up with this. And this, this is just my musing. This is my pulling it all together. But, but hear this out as we think about the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is a divine call to follow Jesus as Lord in every area of your life and to compel others to do the same. And we're going to work through this definition. And I think it's helpful for us to see why it's important. First of all, there's a divine call. It was the tradition of that day that a student who was wanting to be a disciple would actually seek out a rabbi of their own choosing. And they would attach themselves to that particular rabbi. And there was much prestige attached to that. I mean, think of it in today's term. Someone wants to be a disciple. They're going to say, well, let's see. Who am I going to go to? Well, Spurgeon's not here anymore, so I guess I can't attach myself to him. And we have a little bit of that going on, right? People going to seminary at particular places because of key leaders and that kind of stuff. But that's not how Jesus worked. He doesn't have a bunch of people knocking on his door saying, hey, I want to be your disciple. No, he calls his disciples to follow him. He takes the initiative. And they respond to his initiative, and they leave everything behind, and they follow him. He pursues them. He draws them. He calls them. And that is why Jesus reminds the 12 disciples, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So this calling is unique to the character of Jesus and his church. He chooses his disciples in a very similar way that he chose Israel to be the nation that he was going to bless there was nothing about Israel that was attractive. It didn't even exist. But God chose a particular man, a particular people group. He chose them simply because it was his desire to do so. 
He chose them by his grace, not because of their stature, not because of their power, not because of their abilities, but by his grace alone. To that end, disciples of Christ don't thank themselves for their own wise decision-making of choosing Christ. I was so smart. You know, I studied all the different religions, and it was very clear to me that Christianity was it. And, you know, it just made a lot of sense because everything else was not logical and trying to give yourself the credit. Now, there may be some process where you do do some research and stuff, but behind the scenes, God was pulling the strings of your heart to himself. And he's the one that breathed new life into you. So no, disciples of Christ thank the triune God for his undeserved grace. So first of all, discipleship is a divine call. Secondly, it's a divine call to follow Jesus as Lord. The word disciple or mathetes means learner. It means a student. And it's very, it's every student's goal to become like his own master. In fact, the rabbis of that day, as they had disciples come in, desired that those disciples would mature and grow so that when they left, they would take their place as rabbis and continue their traditions. But that is not what happens with our relationship with Jesus. See, the relationship with Jesus is different. He will always be the supreme leader. And you and I, who are his children, will always be his disciples. But it is our responsibility still to follow him in order to be more and more like him. But we will never take his place. So how does this discipleship work? Well, as we follow the Lord, we, we learn by listening or hearing. So we follow Jesus by truly listening to what he says. Secondly, also by doing what he says. Well, so let's think about listening to what he says. Throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus and his followers um, teaching about the Gospel, teaching about this kingdom, teaching about what it means to live a life that reflects God actually present in your hearts. The Sermon on the Mount, he teaches in the synagogues, he teaches in people's homes, he teaches the twelve as they are set aside, getting away. So when Jesus is teaching, his disciples learn by hearing what he says, but they also learn by watching what he does. Many times in the Gospels, we see Jesus doing certain things, such as preaching the Gospel, such as having compassion, or um, healing people. And not only are they watching, but they are then in turn commanded to do the same, to carry out life in the same attitudes. Jesus is an example then to be imitated by the disciples. So disciples follow Jesus in his humility, in his love, in his willingness to serve. So learning by Listening, learning by doing, but also learning by submitting and trusting. From the moment of their conversion, a disciple follows Jesus as Lord. Now, we all know this. I, I know that we all know this because of our church and what we teach here. 
But Jesus doesn't become your Lord. What's the answer? He, what? Is Lord. He's already Lord. And what a disciple does is he submits himself to that lordship, to that mastership over his life. In other words, his will, his counsel, his revealed world, his instructions rise above all earthly counsel and wisdom. His words and example reign supreme. So discipleship is a divine call to follow Jesus as Lord, but get this now, in every area of your life. That means that Jesus is Lord not just over your personal devotions, your Bible reading, your church attendance, your prayer life. We might say your spiritual piety. No, Jesus is Lord over every area of your life. He's Lord over your marriage, and he has things to say to you about your role and how you function in your marriage. He is Lord over your parenting, and he instructs us as his disciples about what that should look like. He is Lord over your relationships with your neighbors. He's Lord over your hobbies, your pursuits, your aspirations. He's Lord over your job and your relationship with your co-workers. He is Lord over your studies and the way you go about studying. He is Lord over your health and your disease and your pain and your loss and your grief and your heartache. He is Lord when your favorite team gives up a touchdown. He is Lord when you hit that wayward shot off the tee for the third time in a row. He is Lord when you stub your toe and get a flat tire or get ants in your kitchen. He's Lord. He is Lord over every area of your life. What you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're desiring, what you say, how you say it, what you do, and how you do it. Discipleship is following Jesus as Lord in every area of your life. So again, looking at the definition here, discipleship is a divine call to follow Jesus as Lord in every area of your life and to compel others to do the same. To compel others to do the same. We compel others through our behavior. Right? They will know you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. There's something there that speaks to the fact our behavior communicates something about our allegiance to Christ, that we follow a particular master, that we have a particular rabbi that is influencing and shaping us. So the habits that we keep, the convictions we stick to, the way we handle trials, the joy that is in our hearts, the way we serve, the way we share, the way we meet the needs of others, that is on display And people around us can see that. But not only do we compel others through our behavior, we compel others through our words. Simply behaving a certain way is insufficient because we are commanded to speak, to open our mouths and communicate the gospel. Yes, we have the gospel on display through our good deeds. But those good deeds are to be followed up with the words and words that communicate that Jesus is 
our satisfaction. He's the one that we are leaning on. He is the one who is our hope. He is our life. And we turn to Him at every opportunity, seeking to, to allow Him to shape and to guide us as we walk through life. So He's, he, he's, he's emphasizing here um, as disciples, that we have an orthodoxy. This is what we believe. But he also wants us to understand that we need to have an orthopraxy, which is how we behave out of what we believe. And sometimes, friends, we can be guilty of saying, yes, we are disciples of Christ, but only being compartmental in our discipleship. And we just kind of evaluate our discipleship by those things that we're doing that might be spiritual disciplines. I'm coming to church. I'm attending home group. You know, I'm praying and spending time in fellowship. But what about your neighbors? What about your coworkers? What about the, the gifts that God has given you to actually have an impact in this world? That's all part of discipleship. And all of that is governed by our Master. So not only is there a definition here of discipleship, with that definition, I want to move to some warnings from Scripture. And we're going to go to two passages. This is where we're going to kind of dig deeper in the text. But these warnings are important for us and helpful for us. The first one is found in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 9, verse 1. And this is what we read this morning. And what I'm saying here is this, that we must follow the right Jesus. What good is it if we call ourselves disciples, but we, have, we are following a Jesus of our own making or the world's making? We must follow the right Jesus. And this is the point of what is going on in this passage. Mark is very careful, and Jesus is always wonderful in giving these, these, these uh, doing certain things. And Mark captures it, first of all, with this, this blind man. But here's the, here's the point. Here's what I want you to get. A wrong view of Jesus will result in a wrong view of the gospel. You agree with that? A wrong view of the gospel will result in a wrong view of how we are to live. And if we have a wrong view of how we are to live, then we'll be walking around this world in blindness. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.8, we will be useless, unfruitful, not knowing that we are blind. And you see, the reason I'm bringing up this idea of blindness is because what's happening before and after this text is this motif or this theme of sight and seeing. With the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8, 14 and following, we find the disciples don't have eyes to see what is actually taking place. All they can see is what they can see with their human eyes, that there is bread. Jesus is multiplying bread. Great, we can stuff our tummies. But they don't have eyes to see that He is the bread of Life. They can only see something in a partial way. They don't have the complete picture. And then after this passage, there's the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John 
Their eyes are open to see the kingdom and Jesus in His glory. So there's this theme of sight that is going on. And so as we come to our passage here, Mark 8, Mark wants us to show through this motive of sight is that our understanding of who Jesus is can be distorted by our preconceived ideas, by our human understanding, and by our fleshly desires. And Jesus confronts our fuzzy understanding so that we can see clearly. Let's begin with this blind man. With the blind man, Jesus illustrates this, this fuzziness. And you know, Jesus comes to this blind man. Let's just read it. It says, And some people brought a, him a, a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in, it, in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I wear contact lenses. Now, I started wearing contact lenses back when I was in high school. Some of you may still wear this kind. I doubt it. But I had what was called gas-permeable lenses. Anyone here wear gas-permeable lenses? There was a problem with them. They tended to pop out when you were playing sports. Basketball games would, would stop and people would be, players would be on their knees looking around for little contact lenses. But if I didn't have contacts on, I couldn't really see that much. And I was a soccer player, and I was out there playing soccer, and I did okay, but I just knew that my opponent was not wearing purple, because our school's colors were purple. They were wearing some other color, so I could identify, you're an opponent. And the ball was kind of like this white blob, and I knew, you know, okay, there was kind of like the square thing. And I might be overstating it, but it was, it was hard to see. But when I got contacts, man, it's just like the whole world opened up to me. Not only could I see their uniform, but I could see who made it, right? I could see their expressions. I could see blades of grass. I was able to see. You see, this is what happens in this passage. Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. That's what it looks like for those of us that are short-sighted. Take our glasses off, contacts off. You guys look like trees. Some like evergreens, some like oak trees. I better stop there with the analogies, but you get where that's going. People don't look like people. They look like these trees. That's the fuzzy part. But notice what happens next, verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything. What? Clearly. Now, why, why is this happening? Is it because Jesus isn't strong enough, doesn't have enough power that he had to pause and take a breath and heal this man twice with his power? Is that what's going on? No. He's making a point by virtue of this healing as an illustration of something. Jesus is illustrating to the disciples and to us that our understanding of who he is can be distorted and unclear. This only time, I believe, in the Gospels where a healing 
has two stages to it. And it's purposeful here because it's setting the stage for what comes next. So with the, with the blind man, he illustrates it with the disciples. He exposes this fuzziness of understanding. And he uses two questions to expose this fuzzy understanding. He says, who do people say that I am? Or who, who do these people say? And what's their answers? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. I mean, if we were to, to tap the world today and say, well, who is Jesus? They would say, well, he was a good man. Example for us to follow. He was a prophet who had some good things to say. He was a good teacher. He was a revolutionary, like many of his day. He was a champion fighter of justice for the poor and the ostracized of his day. This is man's idea, man's perspective of who Jesus is. But notice what he says next. Verse 29, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Not just what's out there, but what is true. And of course, who's always the first to answer? Good old Peter, right? Peter answers boldly, you are the Christ. And we're like, oh man, this is good. Peter, you've done it. You have seen Jesus for who he is. He is the Christ. And we can be tempted to rejoice and celebrate but the problem is something's going to come up that helps us see that even his right answer is a fuzzy understanding of who Jesus is. You see, and here's the point, Peter got the answer right, but he didn't know what the answer meant. Now see, this happens to us if you're a student in school this happens when you're taking a test. Unless you're like a super brainiac and you just know everything. But you'll be taking a multiple choice test and there's a question and you have no idea what the answer is, right? If you're not a student, maybe you're going to the DMV and you're like, I don't remember this one at all. Ever been there before? There is the Rod Phillips rule. You take your fingers, this is A, B, C, D, and you slam them down on the counter, and whichever one throbs the most, that is the right answer. So you do that, and you mark that on your test, and the teacher takes it and grades it and returns it back to you, and lo and behold, you got the answer right, but you have no idea what the answer actually was and why it was the answer. And friends, we need to learn from this that it's not sufficient simply to give the right answer. We need to understand what the answer means. See, Peter is sure that he has the answer right. Jesus must be the Christ. That's what Jesus has been claiming all along. But Peter has his own ideas shaped by his Jewish culture that are distracting him from the truth. He may have the right answer that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't have a clue about who Jesus really is as the longed-for Messiah. Like so many Jews, Peter 
was waiting for the Christ to come and overthrow the Roman control over Jerusalem and Israel. He was looking for a physical deliverer, a political revolutionary. How do I know that? Because of what we read next. Not only does the text give us two questions, but the text gives us two rebukes. Verse 30. Says, oh, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, it was clear that everyone listening to him understood what he was saying. And how does Peter respond? The one who got the answer right how does he respond? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, does that mean they kind of had a little private moment? Possibly. Took him aside. But Peter rebuked him. Why is he rebuking him? Because in Jewish thinking, the Messiah would not, could not suffer. And what Jesus says that he's going he's gonna to suffer, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. But notice verse 33. Now we have Peter rebuking Jesus, but now we have Jesus rebuking Peter. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me. What? Satan. Now he's not saying that Peter is Satan. He's saying that your thinking about who I am comes from Satan, comes from the world, comes from man's thinking. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is saying to Peter and to the disciples and to us, your view of Jesus is distorted when it is rooted in man's thinking. It is ultimately of the devil. You can't see the things of God because your eyes are blinded by the things of man. Do you see so far what's happening? You have this illustration that two parts. There's a fuzzy understanding. There's a clear understanding. He confronts the disciples and he says, right, there's a, there's a clear understanding and there's a fuzzy understanding. But then, as we move to the crowd, with the crowd, Jesus challenges it. And this is where we have the, the famous discipleship statement. It's found a number of times in the gospel in different places. And calling the crowd with him, uh, to him with the disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But friends, that statement is given to us in a context. And it's a context that is balancing what is misunderstood and fuzzy with what is clear and true. And of course, that statement is the clear understanding. This is what is true. If anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone is going to follow me as a disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Denying yourself. You're committed to God's will and not your own. Taking up your cross, you're identifying with Christ and his suffering. 
I'm willing to endure suffering, and shame, and hardship, and rejection because of my commitment to Christ. I am, in a sense, identified with Him. I'm aligned with Him, even if it means death. And we know that that's what happened with many in the early church. And then this call to follow me as Lord, as Master. This is the clear understanding. But notice the distorted understanding. Here's the distortion. Number one, saving or preserving your own life. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save you. See, it's all about me. It's all about my comfort. It's all about my feelings. It's all about my desires being satisfied. Saving your own life. Secondly, it's all about gaining all you can in this world. Look again at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You gain all sorts of stuff. And, and sadly, this is the pursuit of so many in this world, right? It's just more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And stuff doesn't satisfy. It's nice for a season. It's cool, might make you feel good, but it doesn't satisfy, and it doesn't get you into heaven. It's all about what I can get. The lure of this world is what is having more and thinking that more will bring you happiness. But when you stand before the Creator on that final day to give an account of yourself, your stuff will be meaningless. It will go into that eternal dump has no value. It'll be consumed with fire. Third, what fuzziness looks like here is being ashamed of Jesus and his words. And this is, friends, this is confrontational for us right now. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Now, certainly he's speaking about his generation, but we can look at our generation and say, yep. Are we ashamed of Christ and his words in this adulterous and sinful generation? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. See, there's a warning here, friends. It's a warning to us that we can so easily allow ourselves to seek to pursue a discipleship with a Jesus of our own making rather than the Jesus that is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. See, the clear understanding by implication is marked by the following. Losing your life. Forfeiting the pleasures of this world. Joyously living and identifying with Jesus and His Word. All of this for the glory of God. And by the way, when you do that, it's not like, oh, life is going to be such a drudgery. When you do that, he is now your master. He speaks into your world, and he gives you wisdom. He gives you counsel. He gives you guidance that is for your good. And you will be thankful for it. 
without a clear and accurate understanding of who Jesus really is in our discipleship, our discipleship will be distorted. It will result then in things like legalism, trying to keep rules in order to satisfy God. Mysticism, trying to connect with God in, in ways that are not the ways that he has planned at all, but kind of mystical and, and kind of touchy-feely. Antinomianism. In other words, oh, God says this, but yeah, I can do whatever I want because I have grace. Political Jesus. Boy, he is thrown in there in the mix, isn't he? Every political kind of, I want to say, statement pulls Jesus, wants to use Jesus for their own benefit. Or it's therapeutic. It's more about what you feel. You want to get in touch with your feelings. Now, feelings are important, but that's not Jesus' concern. He's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your soul. He's concerned about you proclaiming with your life and with your words to others that He is Lord. So friends, hear this. We must follow the right Jesus. That's why we always got to compare what we're hearing with what Scripture says about who Jesus is. Not only must we follow the right Jesus, but we must count the real cost. And this is the other classic passage on discipleship. And just setting the context here, and we're not going to do a, a deep dive, but Jesus' popularity had grown as he ministered in the towns and the villages. And as a result, we're told that great crowds were following Jesus. Man, if you were a church growth guru, you would be excited right now. Because Jesus has a following. I mean, you might be calling up you know, Jerusalem Stadium and saying, you know what, can we rent out the biggest arena because Jesus is coming to town and all these people are coming. This is really, really great. But what does Jesus do? How does he deal with the crowds that are following him? Well, Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 26, he gives us really three statements of you cannot be my disciple if. Can you imagine this? All these people are following. And he turns around and says, look, you can't be my disciple if this is not true. First of all, you must hate your family and your own life. And what he's appealing here is to your devotions. He's saying, your devotion to me must come first before your devotion to your most intimate relationships. Secondly, you must bear your cross. This is appealing to your identity. You are, by bearing that cross, identifying yourself with Jesus who suffered and died on that cross. The cross was a symbol of suffering. It was a torture tool. So to bear your own cross is to identify with Jesus fully, his shame, his suffering, his surrender to God's will. It, meant, it means death to self, to our own plans, to our own ambitions, and a willingness to serve him as he directs. And he says, you must renounce all that you have. Now, in today's context, we're not you know, putting an offering plate here and saying, renounce all you have, put it in the offering plate. That's not what's going on. What Jesus is saying to 
the crowd here is saying, look, I must be your Lord. Everything you have must come under the umbrella of my guidance, my care, my control. You look to me to find out how you are to you know, flesh out this particular area in your life or live with this particular context. So, hating your family, bearing your cross, renouncing all you have is really appealing to your devotions, your identity, and ultimately your submission. So just like a man who desires to build a tower, he uses it as an illustration here, and just like a king who's considering to go out and t- do battle with another king, we're called to count the cost, to take a serious look at what it is that we're doing. And, and the point here, friends, is this. It is our conversion that makes us a disciple of Christ, and it means that this is a serious matter. Not to be taken lightly, not to be taken casually, not to to be uh, considered without serious consideration. If you are a child of God, you are a disciple of Christ. And that that is not a flippant title. That is a serious title, and we must count the cost and take it seriously and humble ourselves to what God desires in whatever area of our life he is speaking into. So friends, discipleship is not a hobby that you dabble in as you can, an introductory boot camp for, spiritual, for new believers or a spiritual intensive weekend, a second step in your spiritual life, a deeper spiritual experience. No, discipleship is living out the new life you have as a child of God. It is a new life, a new lifestyle, a new outlook on life, a new attitude, a new set of morals. It is living under your new master, Jesus Christ. And at the moment of your conversion, you begin this new life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Over the next couple of weeks, a few weeks, we're going to be talking about some different areas of discipleship. And we're going to consider what does God say to us in those areas? Because he is Lord, and he is master, and we are his disciples. Just like a newborn child, we must grow in our discipleship to become mature as a man or a woman in Christ. That's why Paul says it so clearly in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says, for this I toil. I mean, think of digging a ditch and just doing it all day long and sweating buckets. This is what Paul is describing. This is his labor. This is his toil. This is what he is passionate about. This is work for him. And he does it struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's saying, God is working through me. I am laboring for this. I want you to grow. I want you to mature as a disciple of Christ. So our goal is is both then to, to make disciples as well as to mature disciples. Now let's just bring all this to a close. Some concluding thoughts. This new life as a disciple calls really for three things. 
an eagerness to listen. It's knowing. A willingness to do. That's applying. A readiness to speak. Proclaiming. And then look at our church mission statement. We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed, it's key words, actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, friends, discipleship takes place from the pulpit, takes place in small groups, takes place in one-on-one, takes place as we're meeting for an equipping class, it takes place as you're sharing fellowship at a lunch for six or meeting at the park, takes place from emails, takes place when you're going through some difficult trial, you're asking people to pray for you, it takes place when you, you have something at home that you can't fix but someone else in the body can and, and you're working together. It's the body who's helping the body grow to become mature in Christ. This is discipleship. Happens personally, but it happens together corporately. But it happens when we see Jesus for who he really is. And we're willing to count the cost. And then live with joy in the new family that he has given us. Lord, help us as we consider our discipleship. As we thought really just kind of basically what discipleship looks like, Lord, may we be humble enough to ask ourselves some questions. Maybe a question would be is, number one, am I actually a disciple? Lord, have I come to the place of my life where you have radically changed me and I am now your child? Lord, maybe we need to ask the question, have we in some way, shape, or form distorted who you are revealed in Scripture simply to satisfy our own desires, or simply to give in to a world's thinking? Lord, have we counted the cost to say we are willing to place ourselves under your full and complete leadership over our lives. Lord, it's possible that there are people in this church, Lord, a church that I love, a church that is mature, but I need to say this to myself too. It's possible that we can say the right things, but not actually know you. Lord, what a terrible thing that would be for us to step into eternity. Not actually being your disciples because we have not recognized you as our Lord and Savior. Now, Lord, as we come to your table, it represents what was necessary, Lord, to be paid so that we could even be welcomed into your family and be called disciples.
Lord, as we reflect, may we be reminded, Lord, of the journey that you went on to draw us to yourself so that your shed blood and your body that was given would be that sacrifice once for all and radically change us as we put our faith and trust in you. And Lord, help us to be reminded that your, your active presence is with us by means of your Holy Spirit and you continue to speak to us through your word. You haven't abandoned us. You are with us, Lord. And we rejoice over that. In your precious holy name, amen.